tonight, we've got three stories from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll get an update on NASA's next trip to the moon and Mars. You'll hear the hilarious tale of an opera singing sword fighter. And you'll learn why local honey will not fix your seasonal allergies. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Okay, Cody, have you heard that we're going back to the moon? I did. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. NASA wants to put astronauts on the moon again in the next decade, but it's to help us prepare for Mars. Woo! Really? Close one. <laughs> yeah. I just thought we were going for no good reason. Oh, all right. <laughs> so last week at the Humans to Mars Summit, NASA's new administrator, Jim Bridenstine, said that the missions to both Mars and to the moon will help support each other. He said, quote, our return to the surface of the moon will allow us to prove and advance technologies that will feed forward to Mars, unquote. But what can we actually do on the moon while we're there? Curiosity's freelance space reporter Elizabeth Howell researched this, and it turns out there's a lot. To start with, scientists think there might be water ice in craters on the moon's surface. If that's true, then we could build a moon colony near the ice and possibly extract the water for drinking, showering or cleaning. You know, all the stuff you need water for. Which is a lot of things. Yeah. We could also explore ancient underground lava tubes, which we think humans could use for shelter against radiation across the moon's surface. We can also study the moon to learn more about how the Earth formed. See, all those craters and divots on the surface tell us about our solar system's history. Because on Earth, those historical scars have been erased by wind, water, and earthquakes. We can also test out technologies on the moon that could be useful on Mars, from rovers to mining tools to science techniques. So what are we waiting for? Well... NASA has been working on a Mars mission with a long-term goal of launching in the 2030s. To go there, NASA is building a rocket called the Space Launch System, or SLS, and a spacecraft called Orion. But stopping by the moon first could eat up some of their budget and delay a human Mars mission by a few years or decades. NASA is already reconfiguring its annual budget for the new plan, but it's too early to know what will happen next. Wow. All right, Ashley, what do you think of when you think of... 17th century female opera singers. Uh, I think of proper ladies in giant gowns. Well, today, Curiosity wrote about a woman from history that you absolutely need to know about. And she was an opera singer, and she was from the 17th century. She was pretty much none of the things that you just talked about. Julie Dobney was a bisexual 17th century opera singer, a sword fighter who won a steady stream of duels, and a lady who is not afraid to take her shirt off in public. What? Yeah. She allegedly grew up in the stables of Versailles. Her father worked in the court of King Louis XIV. By the age of 14, she had become her dad's boss's mistress. What? Yeah, 17th century was a weird time. And she lived with her dad's boss for a while, but then got bored and ran away with her fencing instructor. They didn't last very long as an item, but she always stuck with her fencing career. That might sound not very historical, but there was actually a whole tradition of women warriors in France at the time. They were celebrated like Joan of Arc from a couple few hundred years earlier. And you can read about her exploits today on Curiosity.com. But here are a few highlights. One time she was performing in a public fencing show and a guy in the audience didn't believe she was a woman because she was too good with her sword. So she took off her shirt to prove him wrong. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Another time, she snuck into a convent to break a female lover out of the place, and she and her lover ended up setting it on fire. And another time, she went to a ball dressed like a man and kissed a beautiful woman there. 
which sounds romantic, but then three men were offended and challenged her to a duel. She accepted each challenge and beat them all. Oh my gosh, where's the movie about this woman? I know, right? Wow. Netflix is probably going to turn it into an original series. I will watch that a million times. <laughs> Cody, do you ever get seasonal allergies? Yes. I don't, actually. Really? No, I, I'm... I'm just immune to them. I don't know. You're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I get them and then I drink massive amounts of tea with local honey. To, really? To cure it. Yeah. Well, honey's delicious. Local honey is super delicious, but there's no science to the fact that local honey could cure your seasonal allergies. This is bad news. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Okay. So here's how the myth goes. Seasonal allergies are caused by pollen, right? Bees use pollen to make honey. Makes sense so far. So if you eat honey made by local bees, then you're eating a little bit of the thing you're allergic to. And that should help you develop a tolerance, right? Like a vaccine, sort of. Well, there's a problem there. The problem is that the vast majority of seasonal allergies are caused by pollen from trees and grasses in the summer and from ragweed in the fall. And the reason you're plagued by pollen during these seasons is that these trees and grasses are wind pollinators. They release their pollen into the air. Bees usually pollinate plants that don't have the right equipment to let the wind do the work. So the pollen that you might get in your honey isn't even the pollen that's giving you those allergies. Okay, but I know you're thinking, what if you're different and you're actually allergic to flower pollen? Even in that case, honey won't help. That's because bees don't make honey from pollen. They make it from nectar, right? When I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, of course. (laughs) I didn't realize that. Oh man. (laughs) Any pollen that gets into the honey probably got there by accident. According to the National Honey Board, quote, the amount of pollen in honey is minuscule and not enough to impact the nutrient value of honey, unquote. You can read about the scientific studies that back this one up on the Curiosity app for Android and iOS. So basically, we're allergic to pollen that's getting flown around because of the trees. And the entire purpose of bees is to move pollen that's not moving on its own. Exactly. So you're you're eating maybe trace amounts of an inert pollen that has probably nothing to do with your allergies. That's exactly it. All right. That's terrible news. Hey, but honey's still delicious and you should still frequent your local farmers because local honey's delicious. Absolutely. And you can read about everything we talked about today, plus a lot more on Curiosity.com. Join us again tomorrow for the Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.